Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Some of you know about uh, Antonio Brown, the uh, extremely talented Super Bowl winning football player. Uh, He played for the Pittsburgh Steelers for a while. He played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a while. But if you know about Antonio Brown, one of the things you you know is that uh, he's not playing in the NFL anymore, uh, despite him being incredibly talented and one of the best to ever play the wide receiver position. The reason is is because he has this um, incredible temper, uh, a total lack of impulse control, and um, he has explosive anger issues. And in 20, uh, the 2021 season, uh, Antonio Brown famously quit his team in the middle of a football game. Maybe you saw this on the news. Uh, from the sidelines, he got into an argument or a misunderstanding with his coach. And while he's there in full uniform, he takes his helmet off, slams it on the ground, takes his pads off, throws it on the ground, pulls off his jersey. He's not wearing a shirt. And he says, I'm done. And he's walking into the locker room. In fact, while his team is playing at the other end of the football field, he cuts through the field. He just doesn't care anymore. He's done. And he goes to the locker room. And the next day, uh, the team announced that Brown's contract, Antonio Brown's contract, worth millions and millions of dollars, uh, was now terminated. Like, and so you look at the situation like Brown, you have to you think to yourself, why would someone like that leave millions and millions of dollars on the table? Uh, In in fact, uh, the sports writer said that there was a clause in his contract where if he caught one more touchdown pass, just one more pass, he would have gotten a $999,999 bonus. A million dollar bonus for one more touchdown for one of the most talented wide receivers in the NFL. Uh, But he broke his contract. He walked away from all of it. His contract was now null and void because of what Antonio Brown did. And uh, contracts are sort of amazing things, I think. They're sacred things. Um, uh, Because they're enforceable by law. They're opportunities for success. You can sign the right contract and it will catapult you uh, to new heights. But if you sign the wrong contract, it can enslave you and it can take uh, your financial life or your, um, your, your house or all of these things right off the table. Uh, I have a friend of mine who shared that she got suckered into a timeshare seminar down in Florida. And she was young. She was like 28 at the time. And at one point, she said there were three salespersons. She was sitting in a chair. There was one on her left, one on her right, one in front of her. They were all standing up, like, handing her the paperwork, like, high-pressure sales. And she just started to weep and bawl because she was like, I don't want to make you mad, but I can't afford this. Sure, you can. You can afford this. And Finally, they had to let her go because she was crying so hard she was unintelligible. She couldn't sign the paperwork. Her tears were falling onto the contract that they were putting in front of her. She is very glad she did not sign up for a timeshare. 
Well, contracts are big deals, and when we break them, there are consequences that we suffer to our own peril. And what we're going to find today in our reading from Exodus is that this is especially true if you have a contract with God. Um, Antonio Brown may have broken his contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Up today, Israel is going to break a contract with God. And friends, it's not going to end well. In fact, that's our sermon series. Uh, we've been going through and following the life of Israel after Exodus. You saw the movies. You saw Charlton Heston, Let My People Go. You saw the Prince of Egypt. You know, um, you, You've seen the movies. You've heard the stories. And most of them end on the other side of the Red Sea. Well, what happens after that? What happens to Israel on the other side of the Red Sea? Well, um, it's tough. It's tough. Because the people who were formerly enslaved to the Pharaoh of Egypt are now learning to be free under the reign of God. And they're struggling. Um, God is providing everything that Israel needs, food in the desert, water in the desert, safety and protection in the desert. Those things are all being offered to Israel. Um, But Israel, um, whenever they get scared, whenever things look like they're going bad, they respond uh, in, in negative ways. They take their fear, they turn it into anger, they put it on Moses. Um, They start to blame God. They say outrageous things like, you know, we had it better off when we were slaves. And yet God still wants to make a, 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 still wants to to work with Israel. He promised Israel's forefathers a generation or six ago that that's what they wanted to do. And so God brings Israel to Mount Sinai. And what we've talked about recently is the deal. God wants to make Israel a deal. He says, Israel. Um, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God. Um, I will give you a land to call your own, and I'm going to give you some rules. And if you obey these rules, you will have blessing upon blessing. If you disobey these rules, it's going to end bad for you. So what do you think? Are you in? And the people of Israel say, all of these things we shall do. We will be obedient. Israel says that. And then they they sign a contract. They slaughter a bull. There's blood involved. They say, if I break these rules, may I be like this cow who has been slaughtered on the altar? They even have a a meal with God. They go up and the elders of Israel, they share like a post-contract party meal. They, They eat together in fellowship and celebrate the covenant that they have made. But a couple of weeks later, they're going to break the contract. And that's the story we read today. What does it look like when Israel breaks a contract with God? Well, Um, Today, uh, to fill you in on the context, Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai to do business with God. Um, He is learning a lot about this new religion Israel is going to have. It's going to be an Israel uh, religion that has tents, and the tents are going to move, but it's going to be like a tent church. Like imagine if we had like a church tent and we had to move it everywhere we went. That's what church was like for Israel for the first uh, long time. And there would be altars designed a specific way and a big special box that um, was, was filled with important artifacts and that was designed a special way and here the people design it. And so this is a conversation God is having with Moses and it's being written down on stone tablets. Um, well, it takes Moses a while to get all this down. Um, it, God is explaining all this to Moses, 40 days, 40 nights like the flood and the people of Israel get antsy. They get itchy. Um, and they do not like the fact that Moses is gone. So what do they do? They go to Aaron They say, Aaron, Moses is gone. We're in the desert. Um, This God that's been reaching out to us, uh, we're getting radio silence. Um, God's not speaking through Moses. Moses isn't here. Do we even have access to this God through Moses anymore? So we need to do something. We need a new 
God. Moses is gone. We have no idea where he is. So, like, you're the second in command, Aaron, who's Moses' brother. Um, you're the second in command. Tell us, like, what are we going to do? And what are you going to do? Very pointed. Like, what are you going to do? You do this. Make for us a new God. Make for us new gods. And Aaron capitulates, right? He, he, that's exactly what he does. They take an offering of gold and silver and they bring it together. And they go through the process of building a forge and they pour the gold into the forge, into the, the hot furnace, into the mold, and out comes this calf. And they get on the calf and they like etch designs into this giant golden calf. Probably a bull is better translation. It's like a, any cow three years or under. Anyway, it's a big thing. That's a big golden bull. And they say, hey, tomorrow, here's our God. Let's have a party and worship it. And that is indeed what they do. They feast, they eat, and they drink. The text says they rise up to play. And because there are children in the congregation, you're going to have to kind of follow me here. When it says the people rose to play, they're not just playing um, kickball, um, and they're not just pulling out board games for family food night. Um, The text tells us uh, in the Hebrew, play here is more akin to something like a, ready for this, a non-marital communal human fertility ritual where everyone's intoxicated. You get my drift, Um, right? I'm trying to keep it PG, y'all. That's what's happening here. There is a massive, um, ungodly party taking place. Israel has a contract with God. And a few weeks after the contract, Israel breaks the contract. They know the rules, right? Um, If you were here in previous weeks, you know that um, not only did Moses verbally tell everyone what the rules are, Rules like thou shalt not commit adultery. Not only did Moses tell them that, but they have a big book. They actually wrote this down. They took time to write it down in a book. Rules like thou shalt not have any other gods before me and don't make idols. Don't make gods out of gold and silver because that's dumb. And yet Israel is doing the very thing they said they won't do. They're They're doing the Antonio Brown. They are violating the contract. Now, you and I might look at this with the distance of history, and we, we might say things like, how could they be so stupid? <laughs> kind of like we say about Antonio Brown, right? You know, after he left the football team and left millions of dollars and ruined his career, how could he be so dumb? Right? You signed a contract. You're breaking it. Don't you know the importance of this? Israel, you made a contract with God. You are in, and you don't care. Like, what is going on? What, what's going through your head? Well, if we take a look through the whole of Exodus so far, and we look at the pattern that Israel displays, here's what we notice about Israel. Israel has a bad habit of responding to fear with disobedience. Um, Israel uh, has a bad habit of responding to their fear um, with uh, things that God is not okay with. Israel is afraid that they're not going to have any water, And so they start to question God's goodness. Israel's afraid they're not going to find food. And they start saying things like, we should just go back to Egypt and be slaves. And now that Moses isn't here and they're worried, they haven't seen him for a little while, um, they say, we're really afraid uh, that we've lost God and we've lost our food source and we've lost our water source and we've lost all of these things. We are afraid. And they're responding to that fear. They can't handle that fear. And so they're doing things to cope with that fear that God is not okay with. Um, This is not just about like the people of Israel in the abstract either. This is about Aaron too, right? Moses is second in command. There's a real fear here that he's receiving because 
People are coming around him, like my friend in the timeshare chair, right? Like Aaron's sitting there and everyone's coming around like, hey, we need a new God, we need a new God. The people are pressuring Aaron to do the thing that he doesn't want to do, and yet he acquiesces nonetheless. Um, later on, after the, the reading ends, later on in this chapter, Aaron is going to debrief with Moses, and Aaron's going to say, hey, look, like, you know, all I did was take a gold offering and throw it in the fire, and out popped this calf. We thought it was a miracle, so we thought we might worship the miracle, which is a bold-faced lie, not true at all. They, they were very careful to build, the text says, uh, build a mold and then carve it with their hands. In fact, in seminary, by the way, uh, when I was in seminary, they, were, they took this passage, we all read it, and said, here's how to be a terrible leader of God's people. <laughs> right? This is a, literally a textbook example of someone who let their fear get in the way. When you think about it like that, that they're responding to fear with disobedience, maybe we can be a little more sympathetic. Who amongst us in this room hasn't done something they regretted out of fear? Who amongst us in this room hasn't done something they've regretted out of fear? Because, well, sometimes we do things out of fear and there's no consequences. I have an aunt who I love dearly, and she's one of my favorite people. Um, She travels regularly up and down the East Coast to visit family. But she refuses to go through tunnels that go underwater. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? Underwater car tunnels? She refuses. It's a total phobia for her. Um, so if she goes to visit Virginia Beach, she goes like two hours out of her way to avoid the underwater tunnel. If she goes to Baltimore, where like her grandchildren are, she goes the long way around to avoid a number of underwater tunnels under the Boston Harbor. Right? There's not much consequence there if you're willing to put up the extra gas money um, to, to navigate that. And I think we all have things like that. It's like, well, you know, hey, I'm a little afraid of this neighborhood in Pittsburgh, so I don't go in this neighborhood. Or, you know, hey, I'm afraid of flying, so I'll just drive wherever I want to go. Some of you do make decisions like that, maybe not those decisions. Um, but it gets more difficult and it gets pernicious, more per- pernicious the more we delve into it. Uh, because there are, um, there are things that we do out of fear uh, that um, do have long-lasting consequences. Some of us are, are afraid, for example, of criticism. And we can't take criticism. And if we receive criticism, we respond you know, with anger and frustration And then people stop giving us constructive feedback. And so we're genuinely harmed. And we alienate people because we can't take criticism. Um, Some of us are afraid of failure. And we're so focused and myopic on success that we don't see that success in one area and the the energy we're putting into this thing can actually mean failures in other areas of our life that are just as important. Um, Fear is a very powerful motivator. Um, I went through in preparation for this text all of my junk mail that I've gotten about the election this Tuesday. How many pieces of junk mail do you think were trying to scare me into a vote? It was like 90%. The vast, I got a lot of junk mail. Did you get a lot of junk mail too? I got texts. I don't know how they got my number, but I get texts every day telling me that either one of the candidates is gonna you know, lead to the apocalypse, and it's not true, but like, people want you to be afraid because if, they're afra- if you're afraid, then they can offer you a balm to your fear. And they can control you um, by giving you um, the amelioration of that fear. And so people do all sorts of very, very silly things out of fear. And if we can take the time to think about our own lives, we've done tremendously dumb things, alienating things, things that have wounded others and wounded ourselves because we're afraid. We've, we've done it. 
And so if you think about Israel in that context, maybe we have some more sympathy, right? Um, that maybe because they are people of fear, um, they're making a poor decision. Uh, one of the key points in this story is, is that the people, they're afraid. They don't have Moses. Moses was sort of a middleman between them and God. And so um, even though they signed a contract, they're afraid. But also, they still broke the contract. And so God calls Israel in our reading a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. The imagery here is of a farm animal on a plow. So when you think about a stiff-necked you know, animal, right? maybe a donkey pulling a plow, um, you, you use the reins to try to turn the, the, the bit, the bridle, and, and turn the animal the direction you want it to go so you can keep plowing with their energy but they're stiff-necked, so they don't respond. They keep going the direction they want to go, and they don't respond to the, the turn that you're trying to pull with the reins. That's what God usually means by a stiff-necked animal. And um, my dog, because I'm not an agricultural guy, my dog does this all the time. I have a four-year-old golden retriever named Ginger. She's beautiful and lovely, but she is a stiff-necked dog, let me tell you. And um, it's very funny. She doesn't like the sound of construction. I don't know why, but if there are the hammering of nails or like nail guns going on around, she, she runs the opposite direction. And there's a neighborhood, um, a house that was getting worked on in our neighborhood, and it was on our dog walking route. And she heard the nails and she heard the hammer. She refused to go up that street. It's been two years since they finished that project. Ginger still won't go down that street. You'd go to lead her up that street. She sits there, she's pulling, and you're like this. She won't do it. She is a stiff-necked dog because she is afraid, and Israel is a stiff-necked people because they are afraid. Um, so how does Israel not wind up, right, with the giant fireball? Like, why don't they get the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment here? Well, the answer um, in the middle of our reading today is that God signed another contract. Um, some generations ago, God signed a contract to a man named Abraham. And he said, God said, I am going uh, to bless your descendants. And this nation of Israel is his descendants. And so Moses reminds him of this earlier contract. And in this sort of anthropomorphic way, like don't read too much into it, but God sort of burns hot for a minute and then he burns less hot. Don't read too much into that in terms of like other than literary um, explanations. Um, but God says, okay, no fireball. <laughs> No fireball, no destruction, but that doesn't mean Israel's not going to face consequences. In fact, the next three chapters of the Bible, which we'll get to in future weeks, um, outline the consequences of this very uh, egregious breach of contract in worshiping a golden calf. Uh, famously, Moses, of course, comes down and actually sees what's going on. He smashes the stone tablets against the ground. Um, not only is that a fit of anger for Moses, but it's symbolic of the fact that here in these stone tablets is a contract that we have, and Moses slams them to the ground and breaks them, symbolic that they've broken the contract. Um, Moses comes down, and he stops everything, and he demands, and they acquiesce. They burn the bull, they melt it down, they grind it into dust, and they sprinkle it in the water supply, and then everyone has to drink it. That's one of the things that happens, one of the consequences that Moses has for the people. And the symbolism is great, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this quick because there's a lot of going on here, but there's a lot going on with the symbolism. Um, it's profound. Because uh, Anybody remember like a Christmas story? Well, first off, let me ask this. Uh, any of you when you were kids, they don't, it's not popular anymore, but it still happens. Um, any of you get punished because you said a bad word? Your parents made you put a bar of soap in your mouth? 
Um, show of hands, anybody? Anybody? Oh, okay, good. We got one. Okay, um, it's never happened to me. I'm told it's gross and disgusting. And you know, they set a timer. You just have to like have this negative, gross, soapy taste on your tongue, right? And for those of you who didn't have it happen, you remember a Christmas story like Ralphie? He says a, a bad word, and it's a very vivid image of him with like a bright red bar of soap just sitting there, like ah, because he said a bad word. And um, <laughs> Ralphie's got a great line. He says, "Over the years." I got to be quite the connoisseur of soap. Um, <laughs> maybe with my language, I could use some soap too. Um, so there's a sense in which this punishment that God is giving, that Moses gives, is designed to take this, this moment of contract breaking. And not only are they going to see it, not only are they going to touch it, they're going to taste it. There's something very potent about having to taste your sin. And I wonder what that looks like. Probably not Goldschlager, the famous liquor from Sweden that has little flakes of gold in it. Um, there's a sense where when you look at this story, like Israel is getting a very um, explicit taste of what their sin is. Not only this, or that, that part of it, but you see um, as the powder would make its way through the, the digestive tract of every single person, right? it would become, again, I'm going to have to be delicate with the language, the powder would then become mingled in with human excrement. And so if somebody were to say uh, they wanted to build this calf back up again, they would have to wade through an entire nation's worth of human excrement to get the gold back to accomplish that. So this is another thing about eating the gold, drinking the gold. It takes this particular um, profane gold and makes it completely unusable. Like never again can the people use this gold. Um, unless they want to wade through an entire nation's worth of human excrement and sort and sift and burn and purify, it's not going to happen. And so this is a way where Moses says, not only do you taste your sin, but this gold is cursed and it is gone forever. And the third piece of symbolism I want to talk about here is that if your God can be ground up into dust and turned and mixed with human excrement, it is no God. Right? I mean, nothing to me says humiliation. Nothing to me says um, um, uh, uh, powerlessness than being ground up into gold and mingled with human excrement. Um, if that's something that can happen to your God, it's not a human God. It's not a God worth worshiping. And that's part of the lesson Moses is trying to teach. Why would you worship a golden calf when we can grind it up and mix it with human excrement? That is clearly no God worth worshiping. Worship the God who makes gold. Worship the God who made the world. Worship the God who made you instead. So the fact that Moses has the people drink the water uh, with the gold in it is very powerful. It's very powerful. In fact, um, later on in the New Testament, the, the Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the first deacon of the church, first martyr of the church, that's Stephen. Stephen will say, they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. They were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. They weren't worshiping God. They weren't worshiping a God. It was just the worship of their own work of their hands. Um, this is not the final word on the matter. Um, as Exodus 32 continues on, the shockwave of disobedience is going to ripple throughout Israel for chapters to come. Um, some people of Israel are going to refuse to repent, and they will be put to death um, because they have broken the contract and then put their whole nation at risk. Um, and not only that, but God is going to send a plague upon the people of Israel um, that's going to make people sick and kill them as well. 
Um, these are things that are the direct consequences of the violation of this covenant, this contract they signed with God. And we're going to continue to watch this great apostasy unfold next week. But I think there's some things for us to take away in the meantime that are important, um, like the fact that FDR was right. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's from his 1932 inaugural address. Um, take that for a grain of salt, but fear is this thing that takes something that's ultimately life-giving and good, right? Like our faith and our trust in God. And fear takes that and convinces us that the thing that's going to bring faith and life is actually going to bring us destruction and death. That's what fear does. And so there's a sense where Israel is scared and stubborn. They're going to do whatever it takes to survive. Um, but often when we get to that place of fear and we make decisions out of fear, and we do it in such a way that will ultimately harm us, destroy us, and destroy the people around us that we love. Um, Marilyn Robinson, the, the author, uh, said famously in a magazine essay not too long ago, she said, nobody has an unkind word to say about fear, unchristian as it truly is. And I agree with her. Fear is profoundly unchristian. And we see it in our own lives and we see it in our reading, the damage it can do. So what should we do with our fear then? How do you deal with fear? What, what, what's the solution? Okay, well, I've got some fear and I know it's bad for me. How do I get rid of it? Um, the New Testament has an answer. But there are other cultural answers, too. If you ask the Buddhists, um, they will say that our fear is rooted in our anxiety about death. So you just come to, the place, uh, p- come to peace with the fact that your non-existence is going to happen one way or another. And they're like, your problem is, is you like your life too much. So just um, meditate and be rid of all of your desires. And then all of a sudden you won't have any fears because fear is rooted in desire. If you ask the Muslim community, um, they will say that fear is a great motivator. They'll say, look, we genuinely fear Allah, and we fear um, the hell and the, the, that he has crafted for sinners. And so that should inspire us to be good people and do good works. They're like, yeah, fear's a motivator. Um, here's uh, something from a, a Muslim blogger um, who said this. Fear and remembrance of death are praiseworthy. The prophet Allah, bless him and give him peace, said, um, much remembrance of the destroyer of pleasures, death. Um, make much of the remembrance of the destroyer of pleasures, death. However, scholars teach us that there has to be a balance between fear and hope. Um, these things are likened to two wings of a bird. Both are needed to fly. We cannot breast forward with only one of them. Our fear, here's the key line, our fear of Allah, his punishment and his death is what motivates us to do good deeds and make the most of our time on earth. So if you are looking for non-Christian answers, you can say, well, our fear can um, uh, motivate us or maybe we should just sort of get rid of all of our desires and our fear will go away. Maybe you take the secular approach, which is something more like mindfulness, where you sort of disassociate yourself with fear and you observe the fear from a third-party perspective and let it pass. But Christianity says no to all of that. It says that's bunk. Like, you're a human being. Fear is not useful. It leads to destruction. It leads you, um, it, it leads you to act in ways that are uh, counterintuitive to your own uh, surviving and thriving um, instead of following the laws of God. Fear does that. Fear can't be rationalized away. Fear can't be mitigated by the elimination of desire because that's impossible. We all have desires. Instead, Christianity says if you want to be rid of your fear, you have to double down on love. Specifically, you have to double down on the love of God. That is the scriptural answer to how we navigate our fear. Um, The great vision here is that God's love, right? This is from the the letter of 1 John. Um, God's love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear.
Um, and here's the passage in general. Here's the passage. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, the, <clears throat> we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love in God, uh, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because he is also, uh, because he is so also we are in the world. Excuse me. Here's the key part. There is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out all fear. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. And so, friends, when you have fear, what you do is you uh, remind yourself of the love of God. You go back to Jesus who died and rose again for the sins of the world. You go back to this great moment in the history of God's work, not necessarily to the laws of the Old Testament, but you go straight to Jesus who forgives lawbreakers and says, listen, um, everything's going to be okay. That is the answer to love. Um, to fear is love. Israel doesn't know this, right? Their contract with God is just one part of a much greater and grander vision where God is going to say, my holiness and my righteousness and my, my, my desire that people need to be good um, is going to match up with my merciful nature, my desire that people should be forgiven um, so that I can be in relationship with them. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, both come together that he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in that moment, we see what perfect love really looks like. And that is the love that can cast out on fear. And so if you only, um, if you only meditate on your death or if you believe that God, um, if you believe that there's these other ways of dealing with fear, you're not going to get rid of it. Um, you don't have to fear if Moses disappears. Your good works can be done out of charity, um, not out of fear of judgment. When the attack ads are blaring on TV, trying to get you to be afraid, you can remember that God is sovereign and providential over all of it, and so everything's going to work out in the wash. Um, you can throw the junk mail away. You can block the numbers texting you on your phone. Um, you can drive through underwater tunnels. If you believe that God loves you and has a plan for your life, you can fly on the airplane. And when you do fear, um, it is not the mind killer, um, as uh, Dune famously says, but it is within the realm of sins that is washed away by Jesus' death and resurrection. So let our reading today, friends, be a cautionary tale. Um, it is a reminder to focus on the love of God that we see in Jesus. Golden calves, friends, cannot drive out fear, but God's love can. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday. Pennsylvania.